We are certainly glad you're here, and thank you for... Normally, our uh, middle service is our most crowded, so if you are a guest here today, uh, we certainly want to get to know you, and the person right next to you may be closer than you're used to in church, And uh, but everybody's friendly. Nobody bites around here, at least most of them. Maybe those little ones occasionally bite, but uh, we're, we're thrilled that you've chosen to be with us here. And moms, happy Mother's Day. We rejoice. Yeah. We rejoice for godly moms. Thank you for being here. And by way of moms, we are going to spend our time today in a different place than Romans. And we've been in this series uh, on, from, uh, in Romans for many, many weeks. And that might be an understatement, but for a while... Today, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Matthew. So if you uh, have a Bible, I want to encourage you, turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you are new to Scripture, uh, maybe you're not familiar with it, that is past the midway point in the book. It's the first book in the New Testament. The book of Matthew uh, is a gospel. It is the story of the life of Christ. And so as you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background. It doesn't read like necessarily like a novel. In fact, it starts with a genealogy. And you say, well, what's a genealogy? Well, back in those days, families passed legacy by word of mouth. You know, not everybody, you couldn't go to the local bookstore and buy a book and, or you couldn't jump on Google and say, you know, uh, based on Ancestry.com, who's my parents and grandparents? It was passed by word of mouth. And when it was written down, it was written down with a a view that there is fruit that flows from your roots. And today we're going to talk about this fruit from the roots of women. And so you say, oh, Brian, I'm not a woman. Is this message for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, this message is for every person that sits in this room today who often feel like, all right, they kind of lost in the shadows. You may be feeling like, all right, life has not turned out the way you wanted it to, and there's been some curveballs in your life, and you want to know, what does that mean? And what does it now mean that I'm a mother or a wife? What does it mean that I've just lost my job? What does these things mean? And so out of Romans, we're going to take a side trip. And I'll tell you one of the wonderful things about side trips, these little places that we go that we often just skip over when we're reading it. Now, Bible believers sitting in this room who've read the book of Matthew, I dare say that you're a little bit like me. If you've read Matthew more than once, you have a tendency in that first chapter to just skip right over it. Well, one of the problems with skipping over Is this what happens? You miss things that are there unless you're investigating. I lived in New Orleans for three years. I will tell you, it is not a place that you go and live and not enjoy the food. It's a place you go and you enjoy the food. It's one of the reasons why I struggle sometimes with my weight. That... And I enjoy food more than I like being skinny. All right? Some of you, amen to that. 
But in the book of Matthew, folded in the shadows, like in New Orleans, there are, there's gold, there's treasure. If you go to New Orleans, if you're going to travel there, you need to come see me. I can tell you about some places that are not on the main drag. They have no glitz. They have no glamour. There's no neon associated with them. They're not written up. But man, they are the best. They're the places that the locals eat. And you won't ever forget them. And I'm hoping today that what we see in Matthew chapter 1, you'll never forget. Because hidden in the shadow are treasures, names of people. Some we know, others we don't, that we just simply skip right over. One of the best ways to look at this chapter is to look at it in a backward fashion. Now, what I mean by that is we're not going to start at the beginning. We're going to start down in verse 17. So look at verse 17. It will set the framework for us. The framework for everything that occurs prior to that is this. Matthew wrote, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You say, well, Brian, what does that mean? They mean he's tracing for the Jewish people as he wrote this letter that there's a history of living, of being born, living, bearing children, and dying. And though we don't talk a whole lot about it, that's often what our life feels like. I'm born, I get up, I survive, I go back to bed. And we miss really what's going on. So I want to show you what's going on. Look at verse 1 now. And let's talk about some of these people. There are five women. And we're going to talk about two of them in this passage. He begins with the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You say, well, okay, what does that mean? That means big things for the Jewish person. Because they knew who Abraham was and they knew who David was. And he's tracing to Jesus. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And here, watch here, verse 5. Things are about to get interesting. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Ruth. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Uh, excuse me. Boaz, the father of Rahab by Rahab. And Boaz, the father uh, of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The Bible has many places like this. It's fundamental to understanding the passing of heritage. And it was commonly used. And as I said, the writers wanted these people to understand their roots. Because from the roots come fruit. People and stories 
And there are many stories here. Now stay with me. Almost every person mentioned in this passage are men. But folded in the shadows of these genealogies are women. Women, and when their lives are inspected, they put on display and bring into sharp focus the God of the Bible and his amazing character. You say, well, what does that have to do with me, Brian? It has a lot to do with you. Because just as you often read novels, you'll see yourself in the story. People like you. In the Bible, even more so, in spades. This is a passage, when you look upon close inspection, you can see yourself. I'd like for you to look again with me, verses 5 to 7. Two women named Ruth, whose husband is Boaz. And then the other one is not called by name yet. We're going to talk about her in a minute. But she is married to David and is the father of Solomon. When you understand the background of these women, you begin to understand the character of God. And it should leave you with no doubt as you leave here today. And my hope for you is that you leave here with absolutely zero doubt about who God is his redemptive power, and about his love for you that is displayed in the lives of these women and the men that surrounded them. And I contend that none of these women... Now, just think about this for a minute with me. I want you to think large. Can you ever imagine that these women, as they are doing their living and their breathing and their acting, that they could have ever dreamed, ever, ever dreamed what God was going to do through them. They could not. And neither can you, and neither can I. Except for the acts of God, except for God intervening in our lives, our story is left sometimes in the shadows. We don't understand the shadows. We don't understand the shadows that fall on our life. All of us know what it's like to live in the sunshine, but many of us feel like our life has lived in the shadows. So I want to show you today what we can learn from these shadows that these women faced and what you face. All of us face from time to time that teach us about gospel hope. What is really hope in the midst of what goes on in your life? So number one, in your outline you can see this. In the shadows of unbearable loss... God is active. God is active. Now, what I mean by this is we see this in the life of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a book in the Old Testament. It tells the story that often when interpreted by ministers and by scholars, the focus is on Boaz. And But there is much, much more. In fact, the book's title is Ruth. And it has at the center this woman. And what happens with Ruth happens with us. In fact, some of us know, can remember very well what it was like when tragedy and death struck us as a nation on 9-11. The question that boiled out of our gut was, where is God? 
It's the question that rings in the face of unbearable loss in the aftermath of murder, in the aftermath of heinous crime, in the aftermath of sudden death. Loss brings out this primal cry that says, where is God and how can this possibly be good? And Ruth, folks, is a story of death. If you don't know the story, I'm going to give it to you in brief today. We're just going to hit a high-level view, a little 10,000-foot view looking down. For those of us who know what it's like to be touched by death, we know the sorrow of absence of those that we love. We mourn. We hurt. Some of you bear that today. Paul Miller said it as well as anybody that I'd ever heard. He said, outside of Jesus, outside of Jesus, dead... It's dead. It's dead. Separation's real carnage of loss. It's crushing. It's scary. And in Ruth's story, it's no different. She loses her husband to death. She has a mother-in-law who had lost her husband. The mother-in-law's name is Naomi. Naomi lost her husband. And Naomi has a son who marries Ruth. Naomi also loses her son. Imagine with me what it's like to lose your husband and to lose your son. Both. Especially in that day, the loss is crushing. And the story goes, as we see, that Ruth is not a Jew. She's a Moabite. In other words, as Americans, it would like us say, she's not an American. She's a foreigner. And she's young when her husband dies. And she's available. Yet what she does is a testimony to us that screams through time that life is not over. Even in the midst of unbelievable confusion. Some of you have heard this verse read. And it is the most famous verse from the book of Ruth. Ruth said, not to a man, but to her mother-in-law. Listen to this. This came to her mother-in-law. She said in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 of Ruth, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Faithfulness, commitment, in the face of unbearable mourning and loss. When you witness Ruth's story, you're witnessing two women suffering. And folks, it's not just that. It gets worse for Ruth. Ruth follows her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law shows back up home in uh, Judah. She shows up at the gate. Go read the story. It's a fantastic story. And this is what she does. People see her. They say, Naomi, you're home. What's up? And she says, I've lost everything. I have nothing left. Misery is my name. And guess who's standing right beside her? Ruth. Ruth's standing right there. And her mother-in-law says, I have nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing left. 
And here is this woman who's followed her all this way to care for her. And she just ignores her. Sound familiar? Do you know what it's like to be lost, being ignored, being uncared for? When those that you love and you care for and you are committed to treat you as if you're invisible. Ruth knew unbearable loss. But notice she's recorded in Matthew. Do you know who she is? She is the grandmother of David, a shepherd boy who is going to be king. But notice this. Listen, stay with me. God does not say to Ruth, as she stands at the gate, as she's mourning the loss of her husband, as she does not know what her life is, as she lives in a foreign land, God does not write in the sky, Ruth, it's going to be okay. I got it all under control. He does not. Ruth, like you, faced the shadow of unbearable loss. We all know loss. If it's not come yet, it comes eventually. And I'm persuaded that as we experience loss, whether it's a loss of a job, a dream that you had, a failed business, for some of us or you, it could be that it's rejected love, an unhappy marriage. We're quick to interpret and conclude life's just over. And I've talked to many men and women in the face of crushing loss, unexpected tragedy. Life's over. But that's not the truth. When you know Jesus, he is life. He is the way to the Father and he comes to you. And he comes in the midst of your mourning and your suffering. And he promises, John 10.10, he says, I've come. And even though you may not feel it at this moment, I've come that you might know life and you might have it abundantly. That's the promise of life in Christ. If you ever want to know what the promises of the gospel is, it's promises of brand new life. Beyond loss, beyond shame, beyond tragedy, it's the promise of life. But in the, in the shadows of loss, there's more. In the shadows of Matthew chapter 1, there's more than just simply Ruth who faced unbelievable loss, who did not know what God was doing. There's another. In the shadow of shame, we discover that God forgives and he redeems. Let me show you what I mean. This person is described in Matthew chapter 1, Verse 6. Hopefully you still have your Bible open. Look with me again at the text, what it says. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So David's father was named Jesse. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who's the wife of Uriah? She has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. I attended the University of Kentucky, graduated there, and when I was there, there was a, a low-level dorm 
named Blanding. Outside of Blanding dorm, there was a large green lawn. And in the spring of the year, it was glorious time. Everybody needed a little sunshine, and the girls would take their books and a blanket, and they'd go out and sit on the Blanding lawn, which was affectionately renamed Blanding Beach. And they'd get a little sun, and the guys, it was a guy's dorm, inevitably would be standing with her nose pressed to the window to see what girls were out there. And it's an amazing thing to me that I know that Bathsheba could have never dreamed the voices that rang through that hall. Listen, as a sophomore and a junior at the University of Kentucky, I would hear through the hall, Bathsheba's on the beach. Yeah, no joke. I'm, I'm confident that many of the guys that said it had no clue who they were talking about. <laughs> Bathsheba could have never wanted or desired that her name live in infamously like that. What she did is she went out on her roof one night to bathe, which frankly, by extra... Biblical evidence, it was a cooler place. But David saw her. David was king. He saw her at a distance. And he sent for her to come to him. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And David and Bathsheba committed adultery. And Bathsheba became pregnant. And David... Because he was king, he thought, oh, the gig's up, so he's going to cover this up. So he calls for Uriah to come home from the front line to spend some time with his wife, hoping that they would be together. And when she bore a child, it would be evident then, oh, while he was home, she conceived. But Uriah would have none of it. He was being faithful to his, his army friends and he was not with his wife when he was home. So David took the next logical step. He had him killed to cover the pregnancy that he knew would become public knowledge that it was his child. See, many of us don't know, but the Bible actually just tells it like it is. Second Samuel reads like a sordid novel. And I can imagine the early readers of the book of Matthew who pick up the book and look at this. The redaction critics that look at that and go, oh, Matthew, did you have to really go there? Did you have to say it that way? Is that really necessary? Matthew responding, I believe God would have me put it in. In fact... I'm strangely compelled to say it just like this by the wife of Uriah to reinforce reinforce this, that in the line of Jesus, there are people just like who? Us. Just like us. Just like us with the shadows 
of shame. Look, some of you sit here today and you have concluded. You may be new to church. You may think, you know what? I'm interested in God. I want to know these things. I just got to get my life cleaned up. And if I didn't have all this mess up in my life, maybe I could be like these other people. I want to know. I could agree with you right now, but then we'd both be wrong. That's not the way God operates. God takes the sin and the shame and the baggage, the shadows that are cast over your life, the mistakes that you made. And he says, bring them all. He opens his arms. Bring your sin. Bring your shame. When you look at Christ on the cross, you are seeing your sin and your shame on him. See, we have this tendency to believe that people in the Scripture are better than us. Who have no skeletons in the closet. See, the child in this Scripture, born to David and Bathsheba, he did not live long. God exposed their sin. God exposed David's cover-up. And not only was their sin on the billboard, but on the way, Bathsheba, you can imagine the whispers. There, there she is. There she is. You know what it's like for the whispers. On the way, not to the throne room, but on the way to the funeral home, she can hear the whispers. Some of you bear unbelievable shame. You don't, you, you don't want to come out of the shadows. I'm reminded of God though. But God and his amazing grace. When you look at this passage, David lost that child. But notice this, David had another child by Bathsheba. And what is his name? Solomon, who would build the temple, who even among historical scholars today say, probably one of the wealthiest men that ever lived. And when it came time to build the temple, guess what he did? He reached in his own wallet and he said, nothing but the best will do. We could learn something from that. Nothing but the best for God in his house. Nothing but the best. In fact, the the name Solomon means beloved of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I have my own skeletons, my own messes, my own just absolutely foul-ups. Thanks be to God who takes my shame and your shame, and he calls me to bring it to him. He calls me out of the shadows of that shame, and says to me, your life is not over. Your life isn't over. Some of you sit here today and you say, Brian, if I was honest with you, I, don't want, I didn't ever want to be that guy. I didn't ever want to be that girl. But here you are. 
God knows you by name. He calls you by name. And he calls you to bring your shame, to bring your failure, and he will take it. And his arms are open wide and he will bear the penalty of your sin. Some of you know First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, who've had some historical, very gifted preaching. One time was the largest church in the nation. And one of their pastors was W.A. Criswell. And First Baptist downtown Dallas was a place that people came to hear great teaching. Thousands upon thousands of people. And everybody was typically dressed up and in their Sunday best. One particular Sunday morning, Criswell tells the story that as he gave the invitation for people to respond to the gospel, down the aisle came a young woman and she took her place on the front aisle, on the front pew. And as was their habit, they would present people to the congregation to pray for them. And so he noticed that this young woman was sitting on the front pew and her hand was over the card to write her name down and a little information about her. And he noticed that her hand was trembling and she was weeping. He walked over and he, he knelt beside her and said, Young lady, is everything okay? What's wrong? And this is what she said to him. She said, If you knew who I was, and I right now want to write a different name than who I am on this card, you wouldn't want me. And this church wouldn't want me. To which Chris Will said, oh, young lady, you are so wrong. This place belongs to Jesus. And if he's calling you, not only do I want you, but this church will love you and embrace you and help you with whatever you bear today. And Chris will tell tells the story, he said, he said, they lined up for an hour to meet this young woman and to love on her. And I would dare say that Grace Fellowship Church that sits on this hill is just like that. And you may not feel like that you have any place in a church like this, but this place belongs to Jesus. And he calls you to come with your shame, to come with your failure, to come with the messes that you made. Just come, come. He has room for you. We sing, come lost son or come. Weary in your shame for he can save to the uttermost who pardons every sin. You can find your rest in him. The sins of Bathsheba, the sins of every other sordid type. That cross is sufficient to cover. Sometimes the rescue we long for is not really scandal, though. Sometimes the rescue that we long for is the rescue from the ho-hum. And what do you mean by that, Brian? You say, well, what do you mean rescue from the ho-hum? I mean, from the shadows of mundane living, we find that God is faithful. Some of us do not have billboard sins to talk about. But what we do have is the ho-hum, the mundane living. 
And as I have said, the Bible pulls no punches. There is great honor and there's great dishonor. Take, for instance, Adaliah. Adaliah is the woman from 2 Kings chapter 11. She is the daughter of an infamous name, the daughter of Jezebel. Do you know her story? Adaliah has a son who is on the throne. Guess what happens to him? He gets assassinated. Adaliah does probably what you've not imagined. She jumps into action, but not action as you would think, mourning and concern for her family. No, she wants the throne. So what does she do? She has her whole family killed, has all of her grandchildren killed. So she does the unthinkable, she murders, and then she does exponentially what's unthinkable. She kills her children and her grandchildren, all but one. And then the only to make it a little bit more crazy, one is survives, he's a child. When he becomes of age and he's coronated, he's brought forth, he's alive. Guess what she does? She goes, not fair, foul. In a word, you look at her and go, wow. Vile and unthinkable. Contrast her to you or to other women in the scriptures. See, you may say, well, how... I'm not like that. I'm not going to have anybody killed. I'm not in some kind of power pursuit, grabbing all that I can, doing everything that I can to maintain it. But here's really what we see. We all want something. And we all could be watched in what we do when we don't get our way. I fully know that there's always someone who's a little bit smarter, a little bit prettier, a little bit more gifted than you, gifted than me, more gifted. And what happens when they come along? How do you respond? How do you respond when you are just in the shadows of just like everybody else? What do you do? The genealogy of chapter one of Matthew reminds us people are born, people live and people die. And I remember reading many years ago about a question asked to the elderly. The question was, what would you do if you had to live your life all over again? Here was the top two answers. Top two, I would risk more and I would love more. But life finds us filled with the mundane. Some of you sit here today, you've raised your kids. And you could look at me and say, I'm not sure I did my best and now it's too late. The kids are calling less. The house is strangely quiet. The house is strangely quiet. Isn't it amazing how things change? When your kids are crazy in the house and they're small, you go, oh, just for a little peace and quiet. And then when they're gone, you miss, you miss the screaming. You miss it. We simply don't know that God is sowing a tapestry of amazing things. And you can see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So turn with me quickly over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's in the New Testament as well. 
Two women are mentioned in this passage. Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to a guy by the name of Timothy. Look down in verse 5 with me. Paul says to him, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, this is a brief aside. He just mentions this as he writes Timothy. He mentions two women's names, Eunice and a grandmother, Lois. Eunice is the mother. We often could just skip over. But Acts chapter 16 gives us a little insight. Timothy's mother, Eunice, she was Jewish and she became a Christian. And she was married to a Greek who was apparently a pagan. The Christian influence prevailed. You contrast this life to Adaliah. What is... Contrast this. Here are two women just getting up, doing what they need to do to care for their family, sowing seeds of gospel hope in the lives of their children, and it takes. And I dare say that Lois and Eunice could have never, ever, ever imagined that on May the 8th, 2016, in Florence, Kentucky, their names would be read as testimony in Holy Scripture to their mundane faithfulness. How much do you trust God with your life? How much in the midst of what's going on do you just simply say, Lord, I don't understand life, but I trust you with it. In 1971, a 46-year-old woman sat in a hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And for many women that age, life was beginning midstream and taking on new dimensions. But for Hester, her future is defined by what doctors tell her. You have six weeks, maybe six months to live. At home is a six-year-old son and an older, two older sons and a daughter. In her Bible, she writes notes. She writes to God. She writes a letter to her family. And one of the things that she writes to God is this, I belong to you. And I don't want to die. But I can't control what happens. But what she does is she, she, she writes this. She said, Lord, if you will let me live, I know I cannot control what tomorrow will bring, but if you'll let me live, I will do everything that I know to do to make sure that my six-year-old son and the rest of my family knows that my trust is in you. And of all the things that I remember about my mother... 
I remember her standing at the sink. I remember her sitting by the sink when she was in too much pain to stand, washing dishes and singing praises to her Savior. And when I was 20 years old, after I went to my father and said, Dad, I think the Lord would have me be in full-time ministry, and I don't know what this looks like. I remember my father pulling out a letter that my mother had written. And only then did he share it with me. You think your life is not making an impact. You think that you are in the shadows of shame, of unbearable loss, or just the ho-hum, the mundane. But you have no idea of the amazing God who is sowing you into his story and what he's doing. And some of you sit here today and you're looking for answers to your life and you're wondering of the mess that I've made, of the shame that I have, what do I do with it? And I tell you, on the authority of scripture, you can come to Jesus and he will bear your sin and your shame and give you new life in Jesus Christ. And that new life is better than anything you could ever imagine. We're going to stand now, and I'm going to ask you around this room to do business with God. Would you stand to your feet? It's a time of reflection. I want you to bow your head with every head bowed, every eye closed. No matter where you are, maybe you're suffering, maybe there's shame, maybe there's imperfections in your life, maybe you're a chronic thinker of your life means very little. And I want to ask you today to just bring that and lay it down. And I ask you to pray, oh God, help me. Help me, Lord, to see the cross in the backdrop of all that you do for us in Jesus. Help me, Lord, to embrace salvation in Christ. Help me, Lord, to know that The blood of Jesus paid the penalty for all my sin, all my shame, all my loss, and all my mundane. Lay it down. Father, that's our prayer. For the young man, young woman who never wanted to be that guy, that girl who stands here today, and they come with their... They come with their shame. They come with their sin. They come with thinking that you don't want them. Show their heart, Lord, you want them. Just right where they are, you want them. Draw them. Draw them to you. May hearts cry out, Lord, save me from me. Save me. Help me, Lord, to see. Help me, Lord, that if I stand here as a Bathsheba or a Lois or a Eunice or a Ruth, wherever I may be, whatever I may have done, oh God, help me to live by faith in you and you alone as the author and the finisher of my life. I trust you now. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.